I'm sure we were having our hands in there earlier there. Um, I'm sure none of you were uh, up at five o'clock on Tuesday morning to hear Pause for Thought on BBC Radio 2. No, I thought as much. When I was recording it, I thought as much. I thought, what am I doing recording Pause for Thought for five o'clock on a Tuesday morning? But they tell me that there's a million people listen, maybe not at five o'clock on a Tuesday morning. So you take the chance. This Tuesday, ah, you've been warned, you see. So next week there'll be a show of hands as well. We'll just see. But in case you don't make it, let me share with you just something of um, what I'm trying to share on Tuesday morning. At least I think it is. I did six and I think this is the order. Um, I could be wrong. But in one of them I'm looking at something that I've mentioned to you before and there's a lot of what this morning's sermon has been done before but for me it's quite central I think to a lot of the stuff that we need to grapple with and one of the things I've shared with you before is that when John Lennon said imagine there's no heaven that was easy look just did there isn't one great doddle John but my thought for the day wasn't around Lennon day it was around Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And what I have done in this thought for the day, and it might not be Tuesday, it might be the week after, um, I've looked at the comparison of both those things. John Lennon's imagining there is no heaven, which is easy. We just did it, and there isn't, so what? It's different than Martin Luther King's imagining that there is, and doing something about that. How does imagining that there's no heaven help us to change the world that we're living in? And how does imagining that there is another dimension and beginning to believe in that dimension and then beginning to bring that dimension, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, change the world that we live in? And I believe that that's where we're going in Colossians chapter 1. Certainly if you read Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesman. They are suggesting that what we're going to do in this chapter is that we're going to imagine. And then begin to give that imagination flesh and bone. I'm not sure if any of you have read the book but probably over the course of the next while some of you will be attempted even just to find out that that was wrong that bit that he said or whatever else but it's a fascinating book and it takes another angle on it uh, on the whole thing and opened up the whole book to me again and what they do is they use all kinds of different ways I imagine Kevin and that breaking down of the postmodern and plural all that stuff has been inspirational in these two very reformed scholars coming up with this um, these ideas um, but what they do early on is they take a character at the end of Colossians, Nympha, and she, uh, they make her a friend of Lydia. Um, and we know about Lydia from Acts and how Paul met with Lydia, and that was very important in Laodicea and, and the, the setting up of the house groups around the place. And, and, and what happens then is that uh, she finds herself um, friendly with Lydia, who starts to tell her the story. Interesting. I had no idea what Kevin was going to say but starts to tell her the story of Jesus. And doesn't start the story of Jesus 
with the crib that we had here a few weeks ago, but starts the story of Jesus from where the story of Jesus begins at the beginning of Genesis and starts to talk Lydia through or talk Nympha through this story of an alternative kingdom, another empire. And Nympha's problem with it is not that she doesn't want to confess that she's done wrong or repent or become holier than thou. Nympha's problem is much bigger than that. She lives in an empire where Caesar is Lord, where in Caesar all things are held together, where by Caesar they've been given peace on earth, where Caesar is the savior of the people and where they worship Caesar. So Nympha's problem is, if I take this new storyline and start to think about this Jesus as being Lord of all and in him all things holding together and him being the savior of the world, does that mean I'm going to have to sort of rebel against the empire that I'm living in? And she thinks that's costly because she is a moneyed person with land that she's probably got because the empire has oppressed the poor so that the poor had to sell her the land cheap. So her acquirements and her position in this empire would all be questionable if she starts to think about this alternative story, starts to imagine this other story. Because in the world of those who get this letter, and this is how the, 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 the fiction part of the book, there's fiction, there's commentary, there's philosophy, there's all kinds of stuff uh, caught up in this um, book by Walsh and Kiesbach. Um, what she's saying is, I've heard there's a letter coming from Paul and I want to hear what that letter's about because I want to know how he thinks we can possibly dare to be different than this empire. I need to hear that letter. Because when she goes to the market or the theater, or the gymnasium. When she goes into her own kitchen on the utensils that she eats with and cooks with, Caesar is everywhere. And they would suggest that as a result of that, Caesar has blunted the imagination of the people so that he can oppress them and be lord over them. And you know, when you start to think about it, the strap line for this book is Colossians remixed, subverting the empire. And you start thinking about our story. You start realizing that actually that's been our story all along. Do you know when I was in primary school and I used to go to Sunday school, never went to church. Well, I went, they used to have this day. Here's a way to get some people to church. You used to do this Sunday school exam, and if you were in the first three or four, you used to get a prize, and you had to go to church to get it. That was the only time I put a tie on and went to church to get it. But I remember, as I, as one of the kids that would be at the front here, and let me tell you guys, you opened up a few scenarios there, theological, philosophical, psychological. There's a few people, there's a few issues you raised in that children's talk that I don't want to be the minister for the next 17 years to try and uh, sort out, I have to say. But anyway, um, when I was that age... There were two things in the Bible or two names in the Bible that really, really confused me because I got them mixed up. Pharaoh and Herod. I used to get those two guys so confused. 
because there were parts of the story that we tell each other a lot. I guess if you're in Sunday school, I know the kids have been doing it in school, the plagues, Pharaoh getting out of Egypt, and then Herod, baby Jesus not happy, killing all the kids under two. They were both really dominant, vicious people that I knew weren't nice. And this week I found that fascinating as I've spent more time in this theory of Colossians. Because what you realize is that the Lord's Supper was based around people who fought against the empire, escaped the Egyptian empire of their day. Not the Lord's Supper, sorry, the Passover. And that the Lord's Supper is remembering the person who, when he was born, the empire of his day, both the Roman and the Jewish, actually, wanted rid of him. And as we look at it, our story from Genesis through to Revelation is the battle of a people who want to set up an alternative to the kingdoms of the world. The law was all about being different than the other nations of the day. We are about being different than the world around us in very tangible ways. And so that is what Kiesmatt and Walsh think is the crucial part of Colossians chapter 1. It's a fantastic passage. Well read by Kim. And really as she's reading it, I'm going, oh, there's another sermon. Oh, we could preach on that. Oh, we could be in this for a while. But we're not going to be because we want (coughs) to move on. But we might come back to it. When we come out this morning, you've heard me. It's been in the thread. Didn't go to the gym. Didn't go to the golf club. Didn't go to the other place of hobbies. We came here. Why did we come here? Is it any different than the other places? Will we go into church tomorrow or go into work tomorrow and not even have a hole in one to talk about? What is the difference? Well, the difference is that we claim to have come to worship he who is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. We have come to give worship to he who put everything into place, set up the universe. In him, he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. We are here to declare that the fullness of God dwelt in the baby that we worshipped in the crib. And through him, he has reconciled to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And what Kiesmatt and Walsh say is, if you're living in a world where everything around you says Caesar is Lord, you need to alternatively imagine some other way to think and live. And that is what we come here to do on a Sunday morning. We don't come because we're members and we feel we have to come. Sorry, I'm going to go through all the reasons and then you work out the reason that you come. But that's not why we're supposed to come. We don't come because it's communion this Sunday and I better make an appearance in communion in case I need to vote for the next minister because that boy there's not going to last very long. We don't come. Why? We don't come because we have to pay our membership fee every Sunday morning to keep up our membership. We come because we believe this stuff. And if we believe this stuff, it is subversive 
revolutionary and world turning upside down. But sometimes I wonder whether we actually do believe that or not. Because as I thought about it this week, we are like that little church in Colossae because everybody outside thinks we're bunkers. I remember standing one Saturday morning. It was the time that Caitlin was going to drama and it was nine o'clock on a Saturday morning. Why do they pick these times? You know, you're five days a week getting them to school and then nine o'clock and they were standing one day waiting for, that the must have been the eight o'clock class to finish. And um, I was standing there with all these parents and I was standing, minding my own business, thinking, why do you do this? Why do you, why do you not just get a good lie in on a Saturday morning? And then one of them gave me the answer. One of them said to the person beside her, oh, don't you love Sunday mornings to get a good lie in? And I went, there's the problem. We're out again on Sunday morning when we have a chance to get a good lie in. Your friends aren't. They think, well, that's nice. It's lovely. It's just lovely they go down there to Fitzroy and they, you know, sort of show their face. And they're, they're good singers. I've been there a couple of times. I was there in the carol service. And they can oh, it's lovely. But they're, what, what, what are they talking about? The world out there think we're bunkers. If not useless or impotent or whatever else. And we're coming to declare in the songs that we've been singing and the scriptures we've been reading and in the supper that we're about to take that there is another way to live life under another Lord where it becomes service to others not first come first serve or the survival of the fittest or any of those other philosophies that might be out there. We're coming to say that this is what the world was designed for, that we need to put the world right again, that Jesus has put the world right again, and we're his people to try and implement that in the world that we live in. This is what Colossians is about. And we need to begin to imagine that world because I think, I really think that in my life, and maybe in all of our lives, our imaginations have been blunted by the logos by materialism, by the empire that we live under. Are you free? I used to have a poem way back when you couldn't say, are you free to wear flares? Are you free? Are our young people free to wear what they want? If somebody wanted to go to the egg or the bot, one night this week and wear their pleated school skirt that covers their ankles? Are they free to do that? I guess they might be free to do that, but will people look at them and think they're absolutely bonkers? And yet we've blunted our vision of, well, what is this alternative? Maybe some of you are sitting there and saying, well, Steve, I know that it's slightly more than the golf club, but I don't even know where you're going. That may be how blunted we are. We don't know how alternative we're supposed to be tomorrow. Or how we can subvert this globalization. Here just to come because we have communion to go. Let me just try and conclude a couple of things very quickly. We'll come back to them I hope during this little series in Colossians. <coughs> what is our empire? It's not the Egyptian empire. You're not slaves. You're not going to get out tomorrow and get whipped if you don't work a little bit harder. Even my youth director, I promise him. 
So it's not like that. And really, they're not going to go around trying to kill us, although there's parts of the world that they literally have been in the last few weeks. So what is this empire we're under? Or maybe we don't see one. Keysmart and Walsh say this. Is there an empire in the shadow of which we live? Are there cultural forces that seek to take captive our imaginations? Well, think about it for a moment. The average North American person, or Western person, is confronted every day by somewhere between five and 12,000 corporate images. Five and 12,000 corporate images. All geared to shaping our consumer imagination. Whether you're running a political campaign for the highest office in the land, or selling a particular brand of cigarette, it's all about image. A society directed by the consumerist imperatives of a global capitalism is driven by images with a vengeance. And these images pervade especially through the quintessential image producing medium television, must change constantly in order to create and sustain an insatiable desire for more consumerist goods that reach the ultimate goal of economic abundance. Some of our economists might question some of that, but you couldn't write it off. We live in a world where if you want consolation, you will go and buy something out of that shop before you'll phone up Ronnie Davison to see whether he let you into church for a couple of hours prayer. Who is Lord? What empire has us by the throat? And what about this alternative idea? What about this other Lord? The one who loved his enemies. The one who forgave people. The one who said not treasure on earth, but treasure in heaven. The one who said the meek, the poor, would be major players. Will we follow that? Or is it just a nice idea? In a culture of captured imaginations, we need a Christian imagination in the arts and in neighborhood activism that will set captives free, especially when they've become comfortable in captivity. In a culture of ubiquitous graven images and rampant consumerist idolatry, we need Christian practices in business, environmental protection and politics that will topple the idols and energize an alternative economics of God's kingdom. In a culture of disconnection, we need Christian scholarship in the academy and psychological practices in the community that see things whole, cohering in Christ. In a culture of power as truth, we need servant communities ministering to the most vulnerable to demonstrate that truth is on the cross. In a culture of radical uncertainty, we need preaching and liturgy that build the body of Christ where truth takes on flesh. Either we are sad little menagerie of time wasters this morning or we're a huddle of potent alternative kingdom builders. Which Lord? Which empire? Which impact? I'm going to read just another few bits from their rewriting of this particular passage, and then we'll sing and come to communion where I'll read a little bit more. But let's listen to this and listen to this good. 
in the face of the empire, in the face of presumptuous claims to sovereignty, in the face of the imperial and idolatry forces in our lives, Christ is before all things. He is sovereign in life, not the pimp dreams of the global market, not the idolatrous forces of nationalism, not the insatiable desires of consumerist culture. In the face of a disconnected world, where home is a domain in cyberspace, where neighborhood is in a chat room, where public space is a shopping mall, where information technology promises a tuned in, reconnected world, all things hold together in Christ. The creation as a deeply personal cosmos, all cohering and interconnected in Jesus. And this sovereignty takes on cultural flesh. And this coherence of all things is socially embodied in the church, against all odds, against most of the evidence. In a show me culture where words alone don't cut it, the church is the flesh and blood, here and now, in time and history, with joys and sorrows, embodiment of this Christ, as a public politic, around a common meal, in alternative economic practices, in radical service to the most vulnerable, in refusal of the empire, in love of this creation, the church reimagines the world in the image of the invisible God. The church reimagines the world in the image of the invisible God. 2011 has begun. And may we as a congregation and a community be those throughout the next 12 months that reimagines the world in the image of the invisible God. Let us subvert the empire. Let us pray. Our God, forgive us when we get comfortable with the world around us. Forgive us when we have substituted huge empire oppression with smoking, drinking, and swearing. When because we think we're being good because we don't smoke, drink, and swear, we swallow wholesale an empire that has us by the throat, an impotent little collection of people who don't really see that there's very much to do to set us free in a world that seems to be free. Help us to see, Lord, that we are captive to the images of the day and that we need to be a church that reimagines the entire world and gives that imagining flesh and blood. Equip us, Lord, by the subversive poetry of the scriptures and the subversive act of communion to make you Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.